0: Welcome to a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. On today's episode, I host Dr. Payal Arora. She's a digital anthropologist, professor at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and author of the book Next Billion Users. She earned her master's in international policy from Harvard University and PhD at Columbia. On this episode, Pile shares her stories from her time in New York and Boston, and we also discuss her book, The Next Billion Users, which focuses on the next billion internet users from the global south. Don't miss out, tune in and listen on. How are you doing today?
1: Doing good.
0: Doing good? Fantastic. So welcome to um, our podcast episode, and we're very happy to host you today, and we'd have a very informal talk about what is coming up tomorrow, and um, as well as your forecast on ethics, artificial intelligence, as well as more or less your broad understanding of the space of education and where that is heading. So before further ado, why don't we ask you to introduce yourself and sort of where do you come from and um, what do you do on a daily basis?
1: Yeah, so I'm, um, yeah, thank you for having me here, by the way. So. Um, I'm a professor right now and chair in technology values and global media cultures at the philosophy school at Erasmus University. And uh, well, where do I come from? I'm actually Indian, so I was born and brought up in Bangalore, the pseudo Silicon Valley of India. Right. Right. Yeah. And of course, it's much more than that. Um, but I left when I was a teenager and I went to the U.S. So the other Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And I was in a very different world. I used to be an art dealer. And okay. so, yeah, I made a complete different transition. Post 9-11, I moved to New York. And a lot of, let's just say, that was also a turning point for me. And uh, I moved into research and uh, in looking into technology because actually a few weeks later when I moved to New York after 9-11, uh, there was this research group that was formed about How can we scale arts experiences, like live arts experiences, for people suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder? How can we use technologies as a way to sort of, you know, induce a sort of calm amongst the citizens? And I thought, wow, there's something called research? Well, that's pretty cool. So I got involved with that, and next thing you know, you know, decades later, I'm still in academia, that's right? Incredible. So it's pretty indirect uh, journey to research, but that's how I got, you know, kind of involved with how technologies can potentially change the ways in which people deal with their issues or policy issues or really confronting unpredictable circumstances.
0: Interesting. And I mean, of course, we'll talk briefly also about your you know, time at Harvard and uh, what you did. But uh, before that, first of all, the transition of going from India to U.S., and how did that feel for you? Like, what are the sort of bright memories that kind of, <laughs> either to juxtapose or to kind of compare the two very different places, actually?
1: Oh, my God. So actually, I had to say, I wouldn't say like fond memories, but definitely a, a defining memory was my first week in San Francisco. Um I was uh, situated in this neighborhood called Tenderloin, okay. which really lives up to its name even today. <laughs> it's really seedy, dangerous, like there are drug addicts on the Absolutely, street. Yeah. It's, it's a terrible area, but that's where the cheapest rent was. And I was working. San yeah, exactly, and even then, right? Yeah, this yeah, was yeah, in yeah. the early 90s. Right. And uh, basically, in the second day, my roommate got kidnapped. I'm oh, not wow. I'm not making this up. We were at a, in the afternoon, we were sitting, like, uh, next to a bus station, and she was pulled into a car, and then, basically, they got it wrong. They thought she was a prostitute who owed them money, oh, wow. and then a few minutes later, they turned around and threw her back on the street. I think I was still seated there, thinking, what the hell happened? <laughs> and she just ran away. She was this kid from New Jersey. So she immediately packed her bags and left. So, well, let's just say I lasted longer than her. And that was like, welcome to the US. So yeah, that was my memory. That's incredible because
0: I mean, last it's been what, two years I've been in San Francisco as well. And to me either of course the Hollywood movies and things like that I've watched sort of a lot of the places seem very familiar but also first thing that I got to hear about on the first day is like oh there was a shooting there so that's you don't go (laughs) there a lot of the scenes almost felt staged that's true so that's something either thanks to Hollywood but also like you know the resemblance is um, incredible and, uh, and then you had an interesting time. So you moved to New York right after 9-11.
1: Yeah, how yeah. You,
0: Would you describe the kind of environment? Were people back to normal? Were they still kind of... Uh, how did it feel?
1: Yeah, so it was, um, you know, New York, for those who've been there, it's very dense and you can't just escape what's happening, right? I mean, everybody's in it, whether you like it or not. You could see the smoke, coming out from very, very far uptown, right? So um, what I did experience, especially coming from California, where people are like, ah, New Yorkers, the East Coast, they're so rude, they're so... You know, the the cliches of the East Coast versus West Coast, Mm -hmm. we are more relaxed and friendly, they're so rude. Well, my experience was they were uh, very, very friendly and very open because, you know, it kind of pulls people together, right? Uh, When you have something this... Uh, astronomical in your city and you are then pushed together. And so people would literally like voluntarily say, are you lost? I mean, you know, it was like, it felt a little creepy because you're like, hang on, you're supposed to fit the trope of a movie. Be rude. Like walk past me, push (laughs) me down the stairs or something. (laughs) Not like be so helpful. And so it was a very kind atmosphere. But I do also remember that that every media, from uh, you know the television to radios, everything was constantly on with this non-stop news from mainstream about the you know like just. Really leveraging on nine eleven as uh, content, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because they knew they had a captured audience. But that is so unhealthy. Yeah. So this also goes into the whole. Of course, I know we'll talk more about about the ethics of mm-hmm. media industries Absolutely. and why has mainstream lost its credibility in many average people's like perceptions? Is because you know at a time when the the city had to heal. I was even I was getting this form of anxiety Correct. constantly on. So in some sense we were trying to see how technologies can ease those mm-hmm. kinds of anxiety, but the same mass technology. Absolutely. It was a it was a sustainable business model yeah, of yeah. let's just produce enormous amounts of anxiety by reminding you yeah. and showing you these buildings coming down like for the 150th and time. Yeah. And also listening to the widows and their interviews and what they're going mm. through, the firefighters. And it repeated itself nonstop.
0: Incredible. You know? But were you there on the day of, of September 11th? Itself? No, Okay, no. so you came in after. But, uh, I mean, it's interesting because that actually, in a way, gave birth to the whole security industry. And uh, so if you looked at flights sort of taking boarding a flight before that and after that it's a significantly different experience.
1: Yes, absolutely. You, You know, you have these spaces like in the subway there was this constant, and this was the Homeland Security, the birth of it, right? And you would have, it would say orange alert, red alert, you know, and that also contributed to the anxiety. Because actually, what do you mean, right? Orange alert. Mm -hmm. Did they get a warning that there's going to be another terrorist attack? There was no information. It was just these color codes which would produce these sort of levels of anxiety which would go up and down and in a space which was supposed to be uh, you know, something which is extraordinarily normal, right? Yeah. New Yorkers love their subway systems. Okay, I mean, they hate love, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a like, bit word, right. Yeah, but meaning yeah. The, let's just say extraordinarily dependent on Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. Right? It's, yeah. it's like the lungs of the city. And for you to make that space unsafe, yeah. you know, when you're going, of course, you're going underground, you have this insane density of people stuck in a train, and you want to make them panic by yeah. going in and out. It's, <laughs> it, it was, you know, it really makes you think about the responsibility of the state, city council and in, you know, manufacturing, you know, fear and yeah. you know, leveraging on that to get your way.
0: Mm. And uh, so how long did you live in New York?
1: Uh, almost 10 years.
0: Can you be called a New Yorker?
1: Uh, you're a New Yorker as long as you live in New York. Ah, I, so the moment you leave, you. I don't think you, yeah, you lose that status because, you, you know, to be a New Yorker, you have to be bleeding in your wallet. Mm. You have to spend every penny on rent. Right. But you don't have any time to be in your apartment because you have to work Correct. Like a to dog. make sure that you can fulfill exactly. that. Yeah. And then you say something as banal as a city is my home. Right. Because you have to, because you're like pretty much working around the clock so there's all that that makes a new Yorker, and then you come up with something as like uh you know superficial as the world comes to you right because you don't take holidays you know <laughs> fair
0: <laughs> enough you know i mean so, you always have this coping mechanism portrayed in a way that it actually is interesting oh my god so what were so you doing funny. in new york
1: uh well so i was initially in the art world right yes. i used to be in the uh, art consultancy and then I made a transition, I started my master's mm-hmm. uh, at Harvard, so I was commuting between New York so and Boston. To Boston, back and
0: forth, wow. Yeah,
1: because my, my husband was based in New York, and then I did my PhD in New York, so at Columbia University, right. and then, yeah, next thing you know, I'm off to Amsterdam.
0: Wow. So before that, I mean, um, how was your time in Harvard? And what masters did you do there? I mean, of course, Harvard has an iconic name. And Mm -hmm. um, how would you sort of differentiate the time there compared to any other place in the world? What's special about Harvard?
1: Well, in some sense, you know, getting in there... uh, Sort of demystified it because you're right, especially for, for an Indian, right? Correct. They don't. They didn't even know what Columbia was. Like, right, right. Like you know, the Amer- average American knows it's a good school.
0: Of course. Yeah.
1: But Indians are like, okay, is it Cambridge or is it Harvard? Correct. Have you gone? Oh, Oxford. Oxford. Right? I mean there that's we go. The, yeah. That's what they know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and then, so it's a huge thing. You build it up in your head. And you go there, and then you realize the teaching at best is mediocre because. Uh, they are paid to do research. Mm-hmm. So they really don't care that much. But They're not so invested in their teaching as much as their research. Uh, but what uh, you do experience is you have access to the most famous people in the world, because they come and have lunch sessions with you, right? And it's it's really surreal. You have the Minister of Ireland. You can have a brown bag lunch with him. Or you have, like, so every Friday you had some event or the other. The, 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 the university itself was so, it, it's such an extraordinarily wealthy uh, university that, uh, I don't know the stats on this, but I know for a fact that if it was a country, it'd be <laughs> a very wealthy country. I'm sure, Actually, yeah. it has a higher GDP in terms of the endowments, et cetera, than a lot of developing countries. Yeah. So with that kind of deep pockets, you realize that... You actually—you're a kid in a candy store. I was going to different conferences, which had nothing connected to my, uh, you know, field of research—from design to arts to medicine to—it's—it's it's really exciting. And I think that was something I really fell in love with. It was an intellectual, you know, uh, orgy, right, of experiences. But on the other hand, what you do sense is—I was definitely the token. There was like. Three of us were total tokens of, you know, you could tell scholarship kids. A lot of them were legacy kids. So Mm. uh, many of them would say how their grandfathers went there, their
0: families went there.
1: And, you know, when you read up about what's happening in the U.S. about the scandals on how these parents were buying their kids, uh, you know, admissions in many ways by doctoring it. And what was really interesting about the coverage was, like, why don't these rich people go the regular route and just buy the position, which is legitimate? And that itself was really crazy to think that these guys wanted to cut the amount of money they want to spend. They didn't want to donate millions to Harvard and then buy the kids' position, but instead they wanted to get away with 50000 Yeah. And that was a controversy. Yeah. And I'm like, hang on, we're missing the bigger point yeah. than you, yeah, 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 because yeah, yeah. there's this myth, at least in you know places like India, is that you came in by merit. Like right. you made it. You're right. like the smartest. No, I'm sorry. Your parents are the richest that's actually more of a signal and you really like you know people were throwing names like I went to this primary school I've never heard of when did name dropping take place from the your (laughs) kindergarten (laughs) schools right and then it it told me something I'm like my god there's name dropping from that stage (laughs) I mean like and everyone's like ah right and you just nod your head wondering my god this is insane
0: that's incredible I mean that's interesting but what what are your sort of most fond memories actually like or maybe one that sort of comes to your mind from the time in Harvard.
1: Well, um, you know, I think just walking through this and feeling the weight of the history of that space uh, because you I I think one of the moments actually now that I think about it which really cemented the privilege that I you know, I had was sitting auditing actually a class of Amartya Sen. Oh wow and I am such a huge fan of his. And I before him there was another speaker, I forget his name, um, Harvard Professor, and I literally could not understand a word of what he said. Like he spoke in such a abstract manner with a lot of jargon and I was like yeah. you know, I was like, what the hell is he speaking? And then Amartya Sen comes and he speaks in such a profoundly and yet simple manner. And I was right. like this is the kind of guy I want to be like like right. really because he is a he is coming up with the most profound ideas in a way that could be ac- accessible to anybody. Absolutely. And it no. wasn't about how to establish my status that I'm an academic but how to communicate in ways that you can change the world and that really Sort of cemented my approach to academia. That's incredible.
0: And the, the other thing, which is interesting about Harvard, is sort of the alumni network, mm, right? Yeah. So, as an alumnus from Harvard, do you still sort of go back to the alumni network, or like what kind of services can you actually <laughs> get?
1: Well, it's to be honest. I sort of moved away from that because it was. It, it, there's also Harvard alumni in the Netherlands, you know, in uh, Amsterdam. So you have to pay in, and you, you sort of do this whole status thing. And you, I mean, it's, it's fine. I mean, it makes a network, but uh, it's a very superficial network. And I, f- I personally, didn't, I, I have scarce time. Mm-hmm. And do I really want to spend my precious time networking with these? You know, total strangers based on just the premise that we all went to Harvard. Yeah, and there's yeah. this sort of, you know, also it's a, it sort of feeds into this, oh, we're so much better than the average yeah, human yeah. being. And <laughs> this kind of arrogance really puts you at a disadvantage because a lot of people who are really successful are not people who feel they're entitled to that right. success. And I don't think that going to Harvard or Columbia or any of these signal, you know, signature, universities establishes it just because and yeah. you know i have similar in india right just because you're an iim iit like which is the mit of correct uh, doesn't mean that you're just brilliant Indeed. by yeah. default yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that actually there's studies now done that these people land up in middle management and with golden handcuffs yeah. and they're not necessary movers and shakers correct yeah. you know and that's something we really need to remember
0: i think you're right and if i were to sort of put my five cents on it like your life almost becomes prescribed to what you should be like and then that entitlement it's for a lot of people that's what stops them because like oh I'm from here therefore I should be doing this and that and not explore and take the chances around also cost of failure becomes higher because you have certain, you know, like, uh, well, legacy to kind of uh, save or like, you know, to keep. So that, that is basically, that's very interesting. And uh, I mean, my kind of approach to people is like, well, it doesn't matter where you come from. Merit If, if I see this as a person of interest, then, that you can figure out within legit few minutes of a conversation. Uh, so, so then you moved back from, or so you didn't actually move to Boston, so you're commuting back and forth. And then you did your PhD in...
1: Colombia-hmm yes what was
0: the kind of the topic or the space of research
1: yeah so I was looking at the juncture between technology and society particularly in emerging markets right and at that time uh, the Indian government had come up with this new policy What's the called... Time?
0: In the context, uh, for which year was that?
1: Sorry, so it was 2005 onwards, and so 2005 to 2009. Um, At that time, the Indian government came up with uh, something called Mission 2007. Okay. So, you know, and this is at the time of my fieldwork, right? So Mm -hmm. the first two years of PhD, you're exploring and you're doing your uh, exams and all, and then you go into the field. And so that was a time when I thought, okay, I want to really be part of this. And what this basically was is, uh, at that time, mobile phones hadn't yet hit, right, the markets and emerging markets. Right. I mean, meaning, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did, but it wasn't in the way in which it ha- is making such an impact now. Absolutely. No, for because sure. Because it wasn't smart, it wasn't connected to social media, it. it didn't yeah. have uh, yeah, 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 yeah. those kinds of uh, aspects. But what was very important at that time was the idea that people could actually connect to the computer. Yes. Okay, the internet, right? So, Mission 2007 was about connecting 600,000 villages across India with uh, the internet and computer technologies by establishing something called Community Information Centers, CICs. And so, each village or uh, subgroup of villages had these centers. And so I wanted to look at what are people actually doing? Right. Particularly when they are For the first time, like these these newbie populations experiencing the internet, are they like looking for things which are significantly different from us? Uh, You know, what are they drawn? uh, Do they want to learn about the world? Uh, What is it? Right. Correct. It's so interesting because that is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you're going in, going native, right, and going into this whole new population. So, my sister's uh, father-in-law has a lot of connections. Uh, in the mountains, uh, Himalayas, basically. Right. He's a very famous geologist in India, and uh, his name is Dr. Valdia, who's written a lot of geography books for India. Oh, wow. And so he, he is called the Man of the Mountains. He's won a Padma Shri too. Oh, wow. you know, so Incredible, this guy is like yeah. very well established. And he said, he, he really nudged me because he came from there and he said, go check out what's happening in the Himalayas. So I went to Elmora for more than a year and it was one of the best experiences I had and I did my first book actually .com mantra from there okay yeah
0: incredible I mean uh, I've done some research on like uh, on uh, the topic and you tried to look at poverty and leisure Mm -hmm. right and sort of The question was, do people actually look for the same things in the developing countries versus the developed countries? And then one of the things that you're debunking was the sort of hierarchy of needs by Maslow, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. And so what did you find out? What was striking?
1: Yeah, so I mean, even then, and the same thing is applicable today, just because technologies change our innate human experiences, desires, and, you know, commonalities do not. And so in when I went into the field in Elmora, in I volunteered at the cyber cafe as, because that was the only way. It's a tiny little place. It's like, you know, a cyber cafe is as small as like a bathroom here. It's like, right. you can, like it's an economy of space. So for you to justify doing research, you better be useful. So I volunteered and said I'll work for free. So these guys thought I was totally insane <laughs> because they're like okay fine if she's an idiot to work for free right and so, came from US yeah. to work for free yeah that's rural yeah. mobility right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I basically and you're like what kind of work right so here was something very intriguing so um, you know this goes to it ties to a larger culture of the servant class mm-hmm. so Teenagers would come into the cyber cafe and would hire the computer, which and my labor would be thrown in for yeah. free. So I'm at the computer, and they instruct me and do this scroll down oh, wow. cut this they're not at the computer Correct. directly so you're the
0: interface between the, the computer I'm the interface it's
1: like the servant class yeah, yeah, yeah. like go fetch me some tea yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Like, it's like because why would I reach out myself and Correct. hold it Correct. so I actually got first hand experiences of how they actually browsed what did they click on did not click on and so and here was a very fascinating thing they what they consider considered as labor which is of course plagiarizing entire schools assignments from wikipedia which was basically the number one work that they were doing in these cyber cafes is like trying to sort of they'd have an assignment and then they'd cut and paste from different wikipedia correct, pages correct, correct. Yeah, well, yeah, not yeah. they well, yeah. technically me actually, exactly but the time when they wanted to directly interface was for romantic purposes uh. so then they would ask me to get up And then the girl would get on one uh, computer station and the boy would go into the other and they would chat with each other and their friends would be outside. Because, you know, dating is just not a thing in India. Even today, by (laughs) the way. I mean, a decade later, it's a taboo thing. I mean, of course, a number of modern, you know, like middle class or maybe upper middle class do it. But for the most part, it's still a very... Taboo thing to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get an arranged marriage, right? And so this was the experience of being in the same space as the, you know, as a potential love interest, and to get to know them through instant messaging because direct conversation was too already. You know, controversial. Correct,
0: correct. So you and needed And yet they and eat, had their yeah. friends outside
1: yeah. as a sort of a, you know, a safety measure. <laughs> right. And this was done all in the legitimacy of a workspace, right? And this really signaled to me is that when do they? What do they really use a lot of that cyber time for? Was for uh, you know, uh, downloading Bollywood movies, yep. music, yep. of course, as well as uh, the sort of online dating. Yeah. But when it came to these laborious school assignments, I was put back on the computer.
0: Right. So, right. and
1: that's when I realized, wow, the, this is majority of the time they still spend on leisure activities like this. You know? well,
0: that's that's interesting, and you sort of saw that transition. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what I see with digital tools is they often just reinforce some of the notions that are already very natural to us and now thanks to technology in everybody's hands the impact of those sort of notions has just maximized the same thing goes with um, space of well fake news right Mm -hmm. it's now become a big topic but it's not like news was true all (laughs) before it's just that accessibility to that has increased and um when with one button we can access hundreds of thousands and millions of people. So the problems I think in size and magnitude have increased but the real problems are still at heart at the people level and the instinct level and sort of how we as people interact.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and also with the fake news, we had to understand majority, like, so less than 5% of the world's countries have liberal democracies. Majority of countries fall the spectrum of uh, different kinds of paternalistic structures from deep authoritarianism and dictatorship to, you know, uh, benign authoritarianism, right? Like Singapore model, which is genuinely for the welfare of the people and delivers for a good part, right? right? But when you have those systems, which is a dominant, the norm, actually, propaganda is key. And mainstream, uh, you know, media is very complicit with propaganda media. So when the panic is around fake news. What the panic really is about, especially amongst national governments, is the narrative is being controlled by other actors yes. besides themselves.
0: Right, which is fearful. So yes, for and them. so in
1: some sense, we we are more panicked about fake news when actual, in actuality it is more promising. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to turn it on its head saying, oh, that means propaganda has contestations from different... Sources, which I'm not saying are great, Mm -hmm. it can fall into the whole spectrum, but there's a reason why users are drawn from them because they've lost all trust Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the mainstream. They don't know who else to trust but word of mouth, which actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. If we were in that position, we would probably also do that because there's such a legacy of propaganda that you will look, of course, for alternative news. And if it comes from different sources, then it's actually weirdly more democratic, isn't yeah,
0: it? Yeah, yeah But yeah, we
1: don't seem to bring that yeah, up with yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. fake news, right? No,
0: I mean, that's actually very interesting because, of course, the the party in power want to hold that power. And then anything that comes against ca- can be sort of translated back as saying, this is fake, move it away. Absolutely. And we see that with a lot of the more nationalistic governments, be it right now in U.S., in India, with Modi, same thing, and we see that as soon as there is this kind of power struggle, the number of fake news also rises. So, so that's uh, that's an interesting observation. So now, just uh, getting back, so you moved from New York to Amsterdam. Why or how? Like it's a very different vibe. If I were to compare <laughs> yeah. the Dutch working culture, I mean, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but how come?
1: Well, honestly, it was a little, I wanted a little adventure, which turned out to be 10 years later, you know, (laughs) like uh, I actually subletted my apartment. I had no intention of moving, moving. So I subletted my apartment. I wanted to give myself a breather and experience a different uh, culture and working norms. And so I thought, okay, I'll just come here for a year, you know, and then go back. And I applied to Singapore, London, here I got into all three, and then I, this was just the best deal, but it was, I could have just as well been in Singapore. Or right, London. I mean. So yeah. it didn't really matter to me. I just wanted, because, because I was on this sort of, I was so on, especially when you're in New York, you do have a New York burnout, because it's constant, like, work hard, play hard. It's not sustainable. And you, you know, there was a sense of maybe this whole, Uh, break from the rat race a little bit I mean not like I was actually getting completely away it was still work but would uh, give me perspective and then well then I stayed (laughs) fantastic
0: and uh, now, sort of um, coming to what you do right now in the space of um, so, what are the main topics that are, of research for you?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually embarking more into this AI for good, which is basically a buzz term going on right now. Uh, you know, everything AI, right? Uh, so AI for sleep, AI for like it's right. become the like right. a, a well, trend. hey, the investors are still hooked <laughs> on it, so <laughs> that makes exactly. sense. Exactly. So, but the the whole AI for good framing is coming from a couple of uh, you know actors one is Silicon Valley 85% of this kind of discourse is very much pushed by Silicon Valley and the other actors that are often in partnership with them is the you know UN like the Sustainable Development Goals Correct, yeah. which looks at AI as a possible powerful tool to enable, you know, a win-win solution of societal good and profit at the same Mm -hmm, time, mm -hmm. which has always been a sort of a you know, mantra by the UN development. But would you
0: discount China in this development?
1: So China has its own trajectory. It has, of course, like, you know, done something which is rather remarkable, is brought out the highest number of people out of poverty Poverty, in the shortest amount of time. It is... It's a miracle in itself, and the sustain. What I notice, if you read the latest SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, you will see them using uh, Chinese strategies, including, by the way, the infamous social credit score. Yes, which is really funny. I actually was reading it, and I was thinking. Like, Seriously, because what it does say is for fintech, right? Because fintech is financial technology, the idea of alternative forms of mobile payment to rope in the unbanked, the right. 1. 1. 1.7 billion yeah. people who don't have a bank account, into the financial system. Because what is proven is that people can mobilize out of poverty if they have access to small loans. Right. This yeah. whole thing of, you know... Don't give people fish, but teach them how to fish, right? And the in this case, take it even further is mm-hmm. give them the tools to fish, right? And so they, it's when you look at the document of the sustainable development goals, it says that well, we look at you know uh, forming reputation scores as a way in which you can signal trustworthiness. To be able to get a, a small loan, so they practically are describing the social credit score innovation, except no mention of China because right. it has a sort of stigmatizing effect. Yes, yes. Because yes, if yes, you, you know. Google social credit score, and you know, it basically gives you the most Orwellian like sort Absolutely. of layout, and yet they are looking at it as yes, it did succeed in no, some that, way.
0: That's the thing. I think there's of course there's aspect of evilifying certain things and. Because it's not ours, like of course we are still driven a lot by the Western values. And if I look at the American credit score system, somehow that is okay. Yes, I recognize there is aspects of the Chinese model where we should be concerned about. But it often seems like oh, our way is fine, and anything else in the world is not fine. Same thing goes with microcredit score. Uh, sorry, microfinancing. Oftentimes, these schemes of communities are used where you. You know, you tie in the whole community. Also people would might question is this their right ethically or not. But sometimes when we have this competing, you know, we uh, hegemon in this case, right? So we have China versus US. Anything that China does, US is like up oh, raises their hand and the other way around. So and it is interesting time time to observe and to actually know what is right and what is wrong. What you're saying is right, that well they've proven success. But how does it look in the long term? Who is right? It's very difficult to judge that.
1: Yeah, and you know, we, there's much more in common with say uh, the way America became so successful, and the way China is on the rise. For example, you know, China was in a grey economy for a long time, and then what they did is try to they transitioned it into a formal economy. Right. A number of like, including you know, uh, a number of like the telecom sector, the way in which mobile payments, yeah. etc., took place, uh, or uh, entertainment industry, etc. Right. Um, the same thing happened in the U.S. Like it took them; they broke all the British laws uh, in terms of copyright, while they were, you know, developing themselves as a state,
0: absolutely, yeah. because
1: uh, patenting, you know, intellectual property in rights, a way slows down innovation. Absolutely, yeah. and the Americans de- definitely defied it all. They are—it's—it's it's not even a debate; it's proven, right? Until they, of course, became, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, stronger, and they had stronger institutions, and they were actually dominant. In yes. a way, then they could entrench their own power by pushing for intellectual property rights, right? Absolutely.
0: I mean, I agree. And that's a very interesting dynamic because we have that... same thing goes with the whole sustainability debate. You know, the European growth, or the industrial growth, and at that point, yeah, there are instances of child labor, there's instances of, of sort of forceful labor, there is um, extreme well, violence around it, as well as, you know, no concern for sustainability at that point, which led to the development. And once you have that, that is when you start realizing, okay, we need to safeguard things. And sometimes you wonder that are these safeguarding models there to safeguard the growth and not allow others to compete in and um, that, that's a question I don't actually know
1: yeah I mean the form of look capitalism itself is problematic in a sense that it is structured based on the fact that they are going to be losers and winners and you can't have that many winners so there's going to be a hierarchy which actually showcases why we are experiencing such a high global inequality yeah. right as Piketty says it is equivalent to that of the 19th century. Now, if that is actually really unacceptable, and, you know, I I was actually uh, in Hamburg a few weeks ago, and I was talking to this cab driver, he's this older German gentleman, and he said, I have to tell you, I know you're from India, and you guys scare the shit out of me, because, what happens when each of you guys start to consume the way we consume? Oh, yes. You are going to ruin our planet. And then China and India is going to destroy the planet. I'm like, or maybe we should change the ways in which we consume. Because this model was not designed to be scalable. Right. And then we should not be questioning how threatening India and China's rise is in today's society, which is basically saying, hey, I don't like the fact that we're becoming more equal. We, we we actually had this privilege of consuming majority of the world's resources yeah. without any qualms, and now you guys want a slice of the pie too. Correct. And so this is really, we have to re-question the extraordinary limits of capitalism and our individual consumption behavior, including if you think about even with Europe, which is far more socialistic than of course the US. So you have the whole spectrum. But Correct. If you look at GDPR, right, the general yeah. data protection uh, laws, Look at how it's structured. What is at the root of it is individual consent.
0: Yes. So
1: it puts the onus on the individual. A lot of... So this is the Western paradigm is it comes down to an individual. There's far less, like, legal structures on, you know, social groups. Yeah. Uh, Understanding that there's certain amounts of uh, collectivization which works, actually. There should be about... Like, you can have public space which doesn't necessarily have to be owned, right? And we need to actually invest in that, yeah. right? So this these notions seem almost so too communist and, you know, has fallen out of favor. And we need to really re-examine that. Is sure, communism of the past, the way it's played out, has led to some devastating consequences. But the ideas behind which it uh, made enormous numbers of societies and people fall in love with those ideas has not lost its, you know, uh, seductive properties for a good reason. Is that surely our, you know, human transactions should not always have a transactional underlying element right yeah isn't there anything more than just a transactional then and this is what sustainability could yeah and that
0: again you know ultimately is about behavioral change and that is something which is formed over years of education and when i say education it's not just formal you know k-12 education but also how parenting is done and all that so what are the kind of values and ultimately i feel like it comes down to those guiding values and ethics on what is right and what is wrong and a lot of the things that we thought took for granted are the rights now are being questioned and there are new rights that we have to come up with especially if we look at well the space of ai but also overall thanks to internet what we have is a physical persona and we have our digital self on the uh, on the internet how is this digital self behaving what are the rights of the digital person what are the threats there's a lot of education to be done there so when you talk about sort of guiding values and this is a more in the space of philosophy are there actually universal values for the entire world or do you think it is something more local how do you think of it
1: yeah so i mean when we use the term universal we think in terms of nations nation states and national boundaries actually i would actually uh parse it in a different way. There are different groups of vulnerabilities and different groups of power. Like, for example, if you look at these AI for good initiatives and AI in farming practices, farmers, uh, whether you're in the Netherlands or you're in South Asia, of course your vulnerability degrees are higher or lower because of the institutions that are supporting it. But currently what's in place are certain small uh, you know, and, uh, and fewer entities like uh, Monsanto or Correct. different kind yeah. of I- incomplicit mm-hmm. with uh, AI tech companies are releasing smart sensor uh, farming technologies and collecting indiscriminate data from farmers, right? And this way they can enforce uh, and actually use the data against them as a group. Mm -hmm. So it's not Mm -hmm. really an individual, but it's actually uh, the entire farming practice where you're amplifying the inequality, amplifying Mm -hmm. the surveillance systems on them in the name of doing good. You're right. like saying, look, I'm smartifying agriculture, but farmers are really concerned because it basically has this constant censoring of the environments, and they don't know how this data is going to be used yeah. against them in terms of regulations, in terms of insurance payments. Is it going to impact it based on predictive analytics? Correct. And all that is in a sort of a black box because it goes into the private sector database, and it is thereby not... Uh, you know, uh, not accessible to these farmer groups. So in that sense, farmers are universally tied because these are global industries, right? And this is something we need to really start to move towards is we have to understand that regardless of how deeply contextual and, you know, different our conditions are, there are certain paradigms which need to be universally applied which will demand a universal framework of regulation, accountability, you know, even if you're based in the U.S., like a number of social media companies are, like Facebook, their majority of customers are, you know, based in, you know, India, Brazil, Philippines, yeah, yeah, Brazil. Yeah. Like if you look at the top co- uh, countries with the most Facebook users, they only the U.S. and U.K. are in the top ranking. The rest are all outside the West in twitter like saudi arabia is number 1 right it's which is so counterintuitive but it is so i mean and so who what makes a company american or you know uh, yeah. is it the the audience because they have to tailor their goods right. they have to subscribe to national laws right yeah. Yeah. so yeah. the in the end it's about just because you can do it should you correct uh, are there underlying ethical principles that should be governing business practice in terms of regulations in terms of like understanding that these kinds of data analytics processes can result in amplifying vulnerabilities and inequalities and that's where you know you need parties which are closely examining it to be able to not allow that to happen because we already are living in deep uh in uh societies right so and
0: this is interesting because on one hand if i look at gdpr it's a very courageous and the right step to take but at the same time, one can look from a macro perspective, well, then Europe just stabs itself in the foot. Because if we all sort of try to play with the same rules, but or play the same game, but one group has a different set of rules, of course, one, one could say that we have unequal rules on privacy, that European companies are finding it very difficult to source data, whereas the Chinese, then we basically make it almost clear that Chinese companies or American companies or Israeli companies have much better position right now to win this whole innovation space. Absolutely. So so then the, the real debate comes in is like how do you actually bring all the right parties together and come to some kind of you know cross global you know understanding and for that i believe parties like United Nations should be in charge of it, but you know it takes time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's also um, this notion that we are so divergent, and in in many uh, among many parties, there's a sense of superiority, right? Yeah. That we have arrived here; these guys have not yet, mm-hmm, and they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, look. In some sense, of course, you can say certain medieval institutional practices, mm-hmm. like you know, in many parts of the world, women are treated as a second-class citizen. Mm-hmm. Have ridiculous, you know, uh, rights or lack of rights. Like, if you're a rape victim, you get penalized for being raped. Right, I mean, So yeah. that, I can say, yeah. is unqualifiably medieval. Okay, mm-hmm. But what I'm really espousing is something which is much more subtle. Like, even with GDPR, yeah. it frames it as embedding European values, oh, yeah. not human rights values. And this is what makes it dangerous. Because mm-hmm. I think it's a very courageous initiative, but it should be that, say, Understanding that all people, if given the freedoms and the opportunities, would want the same kinds of things that an average European citizen does, is to be able to exercise it and self-actualize and be able to still be... Uh, living in a dignified manner, mm-hmm. right? So we have to be very careful how we frame the European values, the yeah. American values, which signal a certain sense of superiority that we've <laughs> arrived, which sort of dismisses the whole uh, fact that these entire uh, countries and you know uh, unions have been, established on the grounds of a history of colonialism, mm-hmm. which went on for centuries, which was nothing but a systematic exploitation, or you know, of not just, their resources, which of course directly enriched Europe, right? The UK was a very poor country until it invaded India and actually basically Extorted, raped its resources yeah, yeah. over an extraordinary long time, and not to forget the rest of its Commonwealth countries. It is where it is because of colonial infrastructures, colonial behaviors and systems of governance and then on top of it, when they got out of it, including the Dutch, they... Actually penalize this country, so they had to actually pay reparations for you know letting them go yeah. as if they were an asset mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. the Dutch had to willingly have to give away and so they had to be compensated same thing in the slavery times right who got compensated in the uh, after slavery in the u s was the slave owners, not the slaves, which is so bizarre because they lost Property, which is human beings, right? (laughs) And those colonial infrastructures are not a thing of the remnant of the past. Mm -hmm. They very much are alive and kicking in uh, legal systems around the world. From India, we have the sedition law, which was introduced by the British in 1837, which is basically penalizing anybody who disrupted social order. And this law actually exists in all the commonwealth countries. Those laws didn't disappear. Those institutional practices of English in higher education does hasn't disappeared. Like, so all of these regulations are very much right. part of the colonial history of the hierarchies of society embedded in it. And yet we wonder, you know, how is it that these countries are so much behind, right? <laughs> well, there's a partly the responsibility of you know, what has happened in a, I would say, recent
0: past, right? Yeah, no, that's indeed, and of course, I mean, uh, there is this, yeah, there are certain things that keep certain groups of people or countries behind, but I think the um, kind of advent of, in in a way, democratizing access to information, thanks to um, internet and mobile phones everywhere, and India taking a major step with Geo on almost making internet access free. Mm-hmm. So in a way this kind of puts all the people on the same basket again and coming back to sort of tie up but on the, um, like what we in this podcast try to get is try to understand what is coming up tomorrow right and now let's assuming that everybody has this sort of you know we start from the same run or the same kind of start where is the world going and like um, how do you see either the space of inequality and like what is it a better time? For a lot of uh, sort of, uh, yeah, uh, people who, or societies that were gen- uh, usually sort of looked down upon, is it a better time coming up or do you think the economic wide uh, or the sort of space is just widening?
1: See, I mean, you know, we, we, I'm very cautious about talking about uh, uh, sort of a deterministic direction mm-hmm. Uh, which technology leads to? Because then it attributes too much to technology. But I do believe that as a, a global society, we learn from our past mistakes. And for example, we don't just we don't think it's acceptable to guillotine people in the public square, right? And when it does happen, like in ISIS, we consider it barbaric, right? Sure. And that's a sort of universally accepted idea, which is. A pro, it's, a no, it's a single uh, symbol of progress, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I do believe as a global society, we are moving a little upward in terms of what we should expect of humanity. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the sense of civility, the sense of community, right? And what we consider as unacceptable and acceptable. So including, even with Saudi Arabia, I'm, I'm still quite in shock about the developments happening, and I'm happy, regardless of all what Saudi Arabia has been doing, the fact that women can now drive, they don't need guardians to escort them around, which is the whole guardianship system, you know, itself is dismantled now, which is, and now the morality police that used to be on the roads all the time, their budgets have been cut so enormously that they're barely on the streets, and entertainment has entered now, and so there's all these developments in a in a country which has not moved much in its sort of societal values and ways of being, and now suddenly all these different changes. So I am hopeful. Look at Myanmar, right? Like from in spite of all the the craziness with the Rohingya, you know, uh, events, it has still come out of a dictatorship, which is itself promising. But then we also have to remind ourselves and look what happened to Iran, you know, decades later, Iran was so much more progressive, ha- women enjoyed far more rights yeah, and until the Islamic now, Revolution. exactly yeah. so, yeah. does that that doesn't fit, right, the narrative of moving in uh, direction, but what we the way I look at it is that we are constantly experimenting mm-hmm. as human beings with what we have, the kind of affordances yes, we yes, have yes. and technologies are part of it, so uh, you know, if you think about Edison inventing the light bulb and he said I am sure now the education system will become redundant because people at last will have the light bulb which means that they can be self-driven and they can study at home in the nights and you know they don't even need uh, to go to school which is such a bizarre yeah, notion or saying you know,
0: you know electricity for good you yeah know, exactly kind of right story. and
1: so the same thing with AI is of course we're going to see the whole spectrum of its manifestation because any technology really is a mirror of what the human imagination can look like and well the fact is we are deeply imaginative beings (laughs) so we can come up with the most draconian most insidious ways in which we can use it to oppress people to the most uh, really liberating and, you know, uplifting uh, sort of stories and avenues. So, we're going to experience it all simultaneously and we're going to struggle with trying to, uh, you know, reduce some yeah. of that damage and trying to push that which we believe will push society forward. And it's just going to be something that we will have to struggle with. But first things first, we all need to be on the same page in terms of that we are in this together. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're in this time and age where everyone's sort of putting their head in their sand, nationalism is on the rise, yeah. you know, groups are getting fragmented because it makes a good media sort of narrative. You you divide and conquer the yeah. typical old colonial correct, correct. strategy, which by the way was extraordinarily effective because we don't, you know, it is very hard to feel for a generic community of like a globe, Right. <laughs> we we feel for something which is much more exclusive. And because of that innate feeling that the average person has, it also becomes ripe for, you know, manipulation. and yeah. You know, so we that's have true. to be careful of our own potentials and weaknesses.
0: Fantastic. No, that's great. Now, just um, the last few questions. Um, what is one thing that really concerns you with the current developments? One thing that you're like, if there, if I could solve this problem, be it in the space of you know technology or something, or it's like, what is the one thing maybe that keeps you awake at night?
1: Well, the the thing is, we what concerns me the most right now is when I see when we come up with new technologies, right? Like say um, AI, is smart sensor systems. Uh, few actors are able to implement it in a broad scale and for us to really know the consequences
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: rather uh, shall, let me say that academics have at this current time a small role to play because we are able to theorize and based on our critical analysis we can we can uh, predict the kinds of like devastating consequences these technologies can have, but nobody will listen to this crazy person standing in the corner mm-hmm. yelling, "Oh, be careful!" You know, and and this, they, they become the fear mongers, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And often looked upon as luddites. Yeah. So the problem, though, is that, and I agree with that, is that you can't just come up with all these cautionary and uh, tales without coming up with ways ahead. How do we? How do we move ahead in ways that can be much more conducive? So because we don't have this balanced narrative, the way in which people go about understanding how technologies impact us is by implementing it.
0: Absolutely. And by the
1: time it's implemented, often, especially with AI, it is already entrenched in systems until we actually know and actually feel its impact on a day-to-day level, which would require another revolution, civil unrest. For things to change, Damn. I mean, this has happened time and again, uh, with every new technology, any new introduction to a system, from institutional reform to that it's, it requires so much more energy from us. So, you know, and this is what concerns me, and this, AI becomes particularly insidious because you can't see it, right, as such. It's not uh, tangible. It's not like a design in our urban space that, you know, we start to feel it on an everyday level. It is, we can't quite put our finger on it. Was it really the algorithm that, you know, rejected my job application? I can't tell, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's diffused. It's lacking in transparency. It's a black box. And by the time we come down to saying, actually, there is a long-standing pattern in it. It it becomes very hard to extricate it from these systems of governance yeah. of the futures. So unfortunately, it seems like given the way things are, I, you know, we will we, we'll expect revolutions of the future, right? Which is not something we should, as, you know, aspire to. I'm, you know, I'm hoping for a much more of a, uh, ongoing dialogue and collaboration to prevent that, right?
0: Indeed, indeed. So. Now that's fantastic. And um, the last question generally that I ask is. Now, uh, if you were to give either advice to yourself, to a your 20-year-old self, or to, let's say, somebody who is just freshly graduating from university, we live in a world where there's plenty of opportunities. And um, what would your, any sort of final remarks of how should a person guide themselves now to actually have the most meaningful life? And if you have a book recommendation to throw in, that's your time.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, when I look at my students, uh, there's so much pressure on young people today to, you know, be tracked, to be able to have a strong career, to already know what you want to do. And, you know, I think that can be very uh, very uh, daunting for young people. And part of it is that one needs to take uh, adventure with the unknown mm-hmm. because you don't know quite what you want to do until you really experience life which is beyond the confines of what your family your friends university schooling provided you with because what if you were born into circumstances which were uh, limited those kind of worldviews, right so partly um, I would say is it look, follow your passion, follow your heart, see where it can take you and jump in because the truth is if you don't do it when you're young, it just gets harder as you grow older. Indeed, yeah. And so it, it really is defying the whole metrics and of, you know, seeing that how you are worth is equal to what degrees you've accumulated, what grades you've accumulated, because we are in a metrics-driven society, you know, this whole self-quantification right, is right, getting right, even right. more perverse with our, all our apps, to help, you know, the self so-called self-care app, yeah. that we need to free ourselves from quantifying ourselves.
0: We're continuously trying to optimize ex- our <laughs> own absolutely. lives. Absolutely, yeah.
1: and in which case we will always feel inadequate because the underlying premises that that there is somebody achieving a higher number than you. And it's a constant reminder, right? Yes. And so it is a really architecting of anxiety, just like what we talked about with the 9-11 in New York, uh, is the architecting of anxiety mm-hmm. produces even mm-hmm. more anxiety and thereby leads to more unhappiness.
0: So sometimes it's just take a leap of faith, you know. <laughs> see, I think that's incredible. And you're right. I think we get into this race to see that there's one right way. Mm-hmm. And that's something which I believe that there is no one right way. And this is a time where we have democratic access to information people. We can build a knowledge like we have never done before. And and that's what excites me about this time. And that's why also what I try to get out of this episode is to sort of shape the, the thinking of the people is that, you can do more than just follow one path. There's no one way and there's no sort of, you know, one hoop in the end of the, the, the sort of the court. There is plenty that we can do. So on that note, um, thank you very much. Thank it was you. a pleasure hosting you. And I feel like we could have gone for hours to discuss a number of topics, either the future or the past. And uh, it's incredible. Thank you for your time.
1: Thank you.